Well, let's turn over to the book of 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, chapter 2. As we continue our series looking at biblical manhood and womanhood, what does the Bible have to say about these things? And we began with a foundation, a theological foundation for uh, these issues, what the Bible says about everything from uh, gender to how those things work out in different spheres like the home, and now these last uh, uh, two weeks ago and this morning talking about church life, and then we'll look at what this means in our relationship to the world, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday. We have a, just a few more weeks in this series, and then we'll be beginning in the Gospel of Luke, if you'd like to read ahead, uh, beginning around Advent time, which is coming up uh, right after Thanksgiving. So, d- does anyone feel like me, like Utah forgot to just, we kind of skipped fall this year? We just we had like we had like six days of fall and then it was like winter, and uh, but it is good we need we definitely didn't need the the moisture so thankful for that. Well, we will be looking into Luke later, but this morning looking into a discussion of uh, church life and uh, men's and women's roles within that, building on what we looked at a couple weeks ago. So let's let's read from. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be beginning at verse 8. Let's hear God's word. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We thank God for his word. As Nevin said, we get these two passages, and uh, these are passages that uh, a lot of people, a lot of Christians even, are like, don't know what to do with. Uh, pastors don't know, are afraid to talk about them, uh, but they're very clearly here in the Bible, and um, I think, for the most part, th- the meaning of them is, is fairly certain, is fairly straightforward, if we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, the difficult thing is, how countercultural these things are in our society today. And that's why sometimes we feel squishy about them. Um, but I, I pray that our desire would be to be faithful to God's word more than we would desire to be approved um, and, and uh, admired by our culture. It's, we're asking the question, as we looked at starting a couple weeks ago, how should men and women serve the local church? And last time we saw this basic principle that Scripture is not not just allowing, but actually expecting both men and women to fully participate in the majority of church ministry, and they're they're to do it together. We looked at 1 Corinthians 12, where God gives gifts both to men and women for the edification of the body, and we talked about how women and men serve the church through all sorts of ministries— using all sorts of gifts, everything from uh, the public reading of Scripture to praying together, 
uh, praying for one another, speaking words of biblical encouragement, speaking what we talked about uh, uh, as prophetic words, but not in the sense of telling the future or giving authoritative revelation, but, but bringing God's word to bear on situations through being service-oriented, through exercising congregational oversight when there are uh, votes on things like budgets and other things like that, through evangelism, sharing our faith, for caring for the needy, discipling one another in uh, small and individual relationships. And we could go on and on with the types of things that men and women both are called to do within the life of the church and how most of the time in the Bible, character qualities and responsibilities that believers are given are given independent of whether they're men or women or young or old. These are all things that we ought to aspire to be and, and, and look forward to participating in in the life of the church. Of course, whenever you serve in any of these ways, though, we did point out, though, that you will do so not as some gender-neutral person, but you will do so according to who God has created you to be. So you, you will serve in the area that your giftedness, aptitudes, and, and uh, uh, joy is found as a man or a woman using those things that God has given you to edify the body of Christ. And so there is a balance and health that comes when we have both men and women serving the church um, through these various forms according to who God had made them, not running away from them. But we also did look at the specific job description that God gives elders uh, and deacons, but we focused on elders throughout the New Testament and saw that it, therefore it's no surprise because God doesn't call us to serve in a sort of neutral way, but as men or as women, therefore it shouldn't be a surprise to us that God has reserved or set aside the office of elder, pastor, bishop, these words that are interchangeable, uh, that they have set aside these offices to men. Because the elders are called to do things that have the, uh, the bent to them or the, um, uh, the, the flavor to them of the creation mandates and commands given to Adam in the, in the garden. Things like protecting and providing and nurturing and these types of things. Providing for the church by teaching, protecting the church from false doctrine, leading by example, bearing responsibility before God for how they shepherd the flock. And these things are deeply connected to those uh, things that we've talked about before with regard to biblical masculinity. So we kind of had a summary statement that said that men and women are called to serve the body in all capacities, except for the one area of leading and teaching the, the assembled church, which God's word has assigned exclusively to men. And so we want to go right ahead to the two key passages that we've read this morning that spell out how men's and women's roles differ when it comes to this local church context. We all serve, but there are some unique and uh, sometimes at first puzzling things that Paul says to men and specifically to women. So we just read uh, 1 Timothy 2 uh, verses 8 to 15 where Paul says that he has a desire for men in every place to pray, to lift holy hands without anger and quarreling. And likewise, he has a desire that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel and modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works, that women would learn quietly with all submissiveness. Paul then goes on in verses 12 to 15 to explain why he does not permit uh, a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but rather to remain quiet. What does that mean? Right? Again, in our modern context, we, we read that, and if, if someone in our culture, on a you know, 
Sunday morning news program said, I prefer women to remain quiet, everyone would go, oh, no, he didn't. He's going to get hurt when he gets home. But what does that mean? Again, we can't, we can't read Paul's uh, language and assume put a 21st century spin on his tone or his meaning. And he gives his reasoning. Uh, and referring back to Adam and Eve in the garden and how the woman was deceived. And again, we read that and we go, wow, that sounds harsh. And then this weird verse, one of the weirder verses in the Bible, verse 15, yet women will be saved through childbearing. Okay, what do we do about that? Especially for women who can't, even if they desire, uh, either can't or don't have children. Well, let's talk about first the context. What, what is the context of this? Well, the context of this, uh, these commands that the Apostle Paul gives was false teaching happening in Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, which Timothy, having been mentored by Paul, was pastoring, had been under attack by false teachers. And we know this um, when we can, you know, we can see some of the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy. For instance, um, in the previous, uh, in chapter 3 there, Beginning in verse 3, he talks about how they have to be able to teach, um, but particularly how they have to be able to uh, uh, teach people with regard to protecting the church from wolves. Right? Uh, in, the, in the first chapter of, of Timothy, he talks about this. He says, uh, certain persons, this is verse 6 of the first chapter, certain persons by swerving from these doctrines, these, these, these uh, teachings about faith, Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. So there's been people teaching falsely, very confidently. Uh, verse 18 of that first chapter, Paul tells Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Well, what warfare is he waging? Verse 19, holding faith and good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So those are individuals within the church that have been doing this. In fact, the beginning of uh, chapter 4 talks about how uh, in, in these later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And he goes on to describe some of the things that they taught. Uh, later on in chapter 6, he says uh, much the same thing. Verse 3 of chapter 6, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So you can see there is a context in, in writing to Timothy that the, there's a very specific, it's not just any type of false teaching. Paul's not even talking generically, but he's talking about these dissenters, these quarrelers that are causing friction within the body of Christ. Uh, by, by their weird teaching, this teaching that they called knowledge, we would call proto-Gnosticism, this, this uh, eventually would became like a cult that came out of 
Christianity, of those that said there was secret knowledge that had to be gained that was beyond God's word, and, and that still is going on today. There are still proto-Gnostics, there are still Gnostics out there in our culture that says, well, that's what God's word says, but we have deeper knowledge that you need to learn uh, in different ways. And Timothy is being called to guard the church against these things. So that's, that's the context, and it appears that these teachers would have been influencing, in particular, some of the women of the church to live ungodly lives that began to be reflected in the way they dressed as well as their understanding of their roles within the church, not just society. And so to help Timothy set things right, in verse 7, Paul says that he has been appointed as an apostle of the one true gospel, the message that there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died and rose again to save all who would repent and trust in him, And as the one who had brought this message, Paul is now instructing the church on how they ought to live in light of the gospel, in light of the good news that they had accepted. And in verse 9, one of the things that he encourages women to do is to dress modestly. Well, immodest dress, we can just think about this apart from cultural considerations, but immodest dress, whatever that means, and notice how he uses the term uh, dress modestly. He doesn't give very much specifics. He does in a few areas, and we'll point those out with regard to gold in the hair and braids and things like that. Um, but uh, he just it encourages them to dress modestly, which is, again, something we can apply directly. We don't have to do any cultural conversion to understand what this means. Because to dress in an immodest way in church, what's the problem with it? Well, it risks drawing hearts and minds of others away from the gospel that Paul is proclaiming, away from the gospel that Timothy is supposed to be preaching, And it begins to put the focus on the person wearing those outfits, right? Whether it's in a sort of a temptation sort of way, or whether it's just, so that could be immodesty in the sense of, you know, uh, skimpy or something like that. We would say today that it begins to put the focus on that person in a a, sort of immoral way. Um, But also, it could just mean showing off, especially in a church like we have today, just like was always the case, where you had a mix of, we read the New Testament, you had a mix of very wealthy people, you had a mix of, because of ordinary, everyday citizens of the cities in which the gospel was proclaimed, and you even had servants and slaves that were part of the church. And the point was, don't dress in such a way that brings so much attention to you that shows off you that you are distracting from the message of the gospel. And that could certainly be Uh, the case today. And he's probably saying this, it seems like he's saying this not in some sort of hypothetical, not in the sense of, you know, I know this isn't happening, but surely it could happen. But it seems like he's saying this because it was happening in the Ephesian church, that there were those distracting others or seeking to outdo one another, seeking to show off in front of one another. And so in verse 10, Paul says, no, instead women have this wonderful opportunity to commend the gospel not through their dress, but through their deeds. Not through their dress, but through their good works. Now, the the stuff about braiding and gold plates in your hair and those types of things, uh, really, those then we can look back and say, culturally, these were things that women used to, to show off. Braids in the hair, because you probably, to have braids in your hair, uh, you probably had to have help. To have braids in your hair, especially lots of braids, it probably showed that you were wealthy and you had servants to do your hair. To put plating in your hair, to have jewelry in your, like woven into your hair, you know, it, it showed a level of sophistication. 
It showed a level of wealth. And so to dress like that, this is the way, and I think this is kind of what Paul is getting at, this is the way that, that uh, the rich women would, sh- wear, would dress themselves and show off in the marketplace or when they go to pagan temples to show who they are. And he says the church is not the place for that. The church is where we all come together, and whether you're rich or poor, slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female, we're all equal in Christ, and therefore don't do anything that should cause dissension. But by the way, you notice, and we read the verse, he doesn't just, he doesn't just give women this. It takes a little bit more explanation. But he tells men to pray, to pray in, in every place, lifting holy hands. How? Without anger or quarreling. So the men apparently of this church didn't have a, their issue wasn't in the way they dressed, but their issue was every time they got together, they began to argue about stuff. They began to quarrel. And so Paul's concern for them is they don't distract from the life of the church and the preaching of the gospel through their behavior with one another, through arguing and quarreling. Now, in both of these situations, I think we've all been in churches or places where we've seen that the way people adorn themselves, uh, can be distractions for others, and the way that sometimes individuals can be divisive and argumentative, it can cause people to have to walk on tiptoes and, and can bring distraction as well. We see that both here. And so Paul's concern, again, is for the gospel. And he wants men and women uh, both to build up the church and display their godliness through their works and their love for the Lord. And that's what he wants for the women. So he has the, the context is this false teaching, and that helps us to understand a little bit of why Paul speaks the way he does to Timothy. That's the context. What's the call? Well, we've already talked a little bit about it, but the call, the, the big call, and the one that when we talk about uh, why pastors, elders, uh, this office is exclusively for men, is and, and the one that the world certainly has a lot of issues with, because they can just chalk up uh, braiding hair and that sort of thing. Even the world can understand the um, sort of social context of that. But the call is for women to learn quietly with submissiveness. What do we do with that? In verse 11, he exhorts them in this way, and really what he means is he's telling women to demonstrate that one of the ways that their good works flow out will be to demonstrate a a trusting posture to biblical teaching. A trusting posture to biblical teaching. So the questions that we might ask, we don't really know the answers to, but we might ask the question, were some women disrupting the teaching in Ephesus? I would guess yes. We don't know for sure, but here Paul is positively commending a posture that looks more like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, humble, peaceable, eager to obey, willing to serve, submitting to the word of God as it is taught correctly, doing so women submit to God. Now, by the way, lest we uh, let the men off the hook, is this only a call for, men, for women? He's specifically addressing women, I think because there was a problem in the church. But like right now, there's one person talking. Everyone else, I think we would agree, is supposed to be sitting under the teaching of God's word quietly and with submissiveness. Whether you're a man or a woman, you're sitting under uh, someone who has been ordained to authoritatively teach God's word to the assembled church, and therefore, you know, we, we see other commands about having orderly church services and those sorts of things, that we wouldn't, you know, allow disruptions in the middle of church. 
whether they came from a woman or a man. It's not as though a man could stand up in church and start shouting at the preacher, and I would go, well, I don't know. It only says women have to uh, sit under teaching with uh, submissiveness and quietness. No, but so this is not something that is like only exclusively for women, but in this particular context, he's emphasizing that this does not accord with godliness for women because they are, they are, uh, they are, and probably because false teachers have goaded them to do this, they are reaching beyond what God has called them to do. And they're not only, as we will talk about later with uh, 1 Corinthians, they're not only dishonoring the elders that God has appointed for that church, but they're even, if they're married, dishonoring their husbands. And so uh, by submitting to the word of God as, as it is taught correctly, both women and men, but here in this context, women are submitting to God. They're trusting that God has not only given his word, that they should believe it and trust it, but that God has given them uh, good and faithful pastors um, to preach it and teach it to them. But not, let's not just focus on the words quietly and submissiveness, but also notice, and again, these are the things that the culture looks at, they get mad at, but they, don't, they miss the whole context here. What does Paul say? Paul says women should learn with quietness and submissiveness. Now think about that in an ancient world that didn't treat women as worthy of religious instruction in almost any other ancient religion. But here Paul insists that women can and should be learning the faith, learning under the same teaching that their husbands, that their neighbors, that the other men, women, and children in the church are learning. Because the Bible, Christianity treats women just as equals in terms of being disciples of Jesus. And a disciple fundamentally is a learner and a follower. And from its inception, Christianity was absolutely countercultural to its age in insisting that women were not second-class disciples, but were in fact worthy of learning the truth of what God's word said to them. And so he encourages them to learn, not just to sit and be, you know, I think our culture hears this and they think that what Paul is saying is, women, sit down and be quiet and let us men you know, do our thing. And unfortunately, let's be honest, there have been a lot of men who have abused their roles and their powers and have done just that. But that is not what the Bible is presenting here. It is presenting a congregation who together come together to learn. And I'm so grateful uh, for women who seek and have a hunger for God's word to learn it and, to, uh, and then to, to encourage others with it. He gives two restrictions here in this text. In verse 12, Paul restates, restates sort of verse 11 in the negative form. He says, women are not permitted to teach or exercise authority of, over a man. So they are, what are they to do positively? Learn, sit under the teaching of God's word, word and learn with submissiveness and, with, uh, and, and in quietness. Not interrupting, not, not showboating. And then negatively, they're not allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man. So from this verse, we see two basic restrictions. The first restriction is that women are not permitted to teach men. Verse 8 suggests that Paul, I think, primarily has in mind what happens when the church gathers corporately. He's talking about the various churches in every place meeting for prayer. So consistent with how the word teach is often used in the New Testament, Paul here is likely referring to the kind of teaching that someone gifted and called by the Holy Spirit would do to bring authoritative instruction in the scriptures and doctrine to the assembled congregation of God's people. Now, by the way, again, 
we think that this is restrictive to women, but in the broader context of the New Testament, we understand that <clears throat> most people aren't supposed to teach and have authority over the church. Even most men aren't supposed to, right? Elders have a very specific set of qualifications and callings and uh, abilities that they're supposed to do, which most men in the congregation don't have. So again, he's talking specifically to women. It's like if, if I was um, speaking at a, at, a, at a women's gathering or a women's Bible study and I was talking to them about some specific responsibility. I might say, well, uh, ladies, it's your responsibility to pursue holiness. And somebody in the world says, well, he said women just pursue holiness. What about men? Well, it's like, but he's not talking to men at that time. He was talking to women, so he encouraged women to pursue holiness. It's the same sort of thing here. He's telling them uh, that he doesn't permit them to teach or have authority over men. But even to most men, when he talks about the qualifications for elders, he's saying, and most of you men aren't able to have that type of authority in the church. It's only these elders, these specific people that God has called. And then some may ask, does this mean then that the Bible prohibits women from teaching ever, teaching at all? Well, of course it doesn't mean that women should never teach. In Titus 2, Paul, we looked at this before, Paul encourages women to teach other women. He commends the instruction Timothy received from the care of his mother and grandmother in his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1. In fact, Paul encourages all believers everywhere to instruct one another as they sing together, that they instruct and encourage one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16, and it, we, all of us, it happens, we learn things about the Lord all the time when we're singing together, and women are part of that. Not only that, but informally, uh, all of us, men, we could say amen to this a thousand times over. We learn things from women informally as they encourage us. I'm so encouraged when, when ladies come up and share with me what they're learning in their own personal study of God's Word, or what discussions they had in a ladies' Bible study. Even when they sometimes challenge or ask really tough questions or lovingly bring up issues about pride or, or sin that can sometimes be used by God to convict all of our hearts. Or when women testify about God's goodness in their lives. Weren't you encouraged last week when Yumiko shared her testimony? She wasn't teaching authoritatively. She wasn't saying, you know, here's what God's word says and what you must do to believe. She was simply sharing, here's what God's done in my life. And yet, I think we were all very encouraged by her. And we'll pray for her. And uh, to see her taking part in Bible translation. What, a, what an encouraging thing. We could keep going on and on with examples. But Paul's concern here is with a formal kind of teaching and authority that is exercised when the church gathers. And to make it more specific for us, in, the, in our context, this would be preaching and teaching from the pulpit that we receive on Sunday mornings and evenings. Bible studies and combined classes that we do when there is a clear person that we're supposed to be listening to. You know, so that, that's one restriction that Paul speaks about. And uh, the second restriction is what, a woman is not permitted to have authority over a man. The word have authority over means to govern or rule over. And in the New Testament, particularly in the letters uh, to Timothy, and Titus, the, the pastoral epistles, this ruling or governing function is ascribed to the office of elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, it's all the same thing. For example, in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, the elders 
Care for the church is likened to managing or ruling a household well. 1 Timothy 5, 17 says that elders rule, the same word, the church. Of course, the primary way that the elders rule is through what? What is the primary way elders rule and govern the church? Is it through business meetings and edicts that we post, you know, do we post the, I love to picture somebody put around Halloween, said, I'm, I'm ready for Reformation Day, and he had, he had uh, on his door, he had taped 95 uh, Reese's cups. It was the 95 Reese's instead of the 95 theses. But is that the way? Did Nevin and I go out and post placards about uh, things every week, and, and that's the way we, we, we rule? No, the way that, the primary way, there are administrative things, of course, you have to do. Sometimes you do have to post signs. But the primary way, a, a good shepherd, a good elder, a good pastor should, should exercise his rule and authority is through the faithful teaching of the Bible. So that I'm not just giving you my opinions or my preferences, I'm trying to uh, tell you what the Bible says and do so faithfully. That's the way it happens. So the two functions of rule and teaching actually go hand in hand, which is why, again, they're set aside for, for just qualified men. Now, some Christians have interpreted this verse to mean that Paul's only prohib uh, prohibition is that of authoritative teaching. So long as a woman would be under the auspices of her elders, then maybe she would be free to preach to the whole church because her teaching falls under their, the oversight of the elders. But I, I just don't think that's what Paul means here. I think it prohibits both teaching and exercising rule over men. Others have argued that this verse merely means women aren't to usurp the position of teacher or pastor, but as long as the elders give them the okay, then that's okay. But again, just the, the grammar and the vocabulary don't support that. Paul again repeats his point at the end of verse 12 that rather she is to remain quiet. She is to remain in a posture of learning and a posture of submission. To listen to the authoritative teaching like the rest of the church and benefit from it, discipling one another in it, encouraging their brothers in Christ to believe and obey it. But God just hasn't called them to deliver that teaching to the church. It's why whenever I see on a church sign, you know, pastors Ken and Barbie, you know, I go, after I stop throwing up my mouth a little bit, I say, that's just not biblical. He might be the pastor, but she's his wife, and actually she has no more authority or responsibility in the church as any other woman. She is there to be discipled, to be encouraged, to use her gifts and talents in a way. That can be from a, a negative kind of, uh, kind of uh, you know, egalitarian point of view that we see nowadays. But it also went back to, you know, old Southern Baptists used to be the, the, the pastor's wife ran the women's Bible studies and, and played the piano. And, and, and it was expected almost of them. And they, they were held up to this high standard as if they were some sort of office holder. You know, but that's not biblical either. That pressure should not have been put on so many pastor's wives in years past. Or pastor's kids. They're kids just like any other kids. Right? Now, the question comes up if you're talking to people, if you're talking to egalitarians, they'll say, well, what about Priscilla? Acts 18. Who, along with her husband Aquila, corrects Apollos in his falsehood and helps him to see the truth. Well, the word teach, by the way, is not used in that text. But rather, Acts 18.26 says that they, notice she's doing this alongside her husband, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God miraculously. So not only did 
is the authoritative teaching word not used there. They're doing it together with her husband, and together they simply are explaining him the way, but to the side. Meaning they're not making a public display of it. They're not teaching the assembled church. They're simply together taking him aside and encouraging him with God's word. Privately. And it seems to be a, sort of a, a one-time, unique, crisis-type situation. Priscilla and Aquila used mightily by God to help an erring teacher become more sound, but not doing so by, by you know, Priscilla didn't get up on Sunday morning and preach about Apollos. Her and her husband quietly took him aside and expressed their concerns to him. Completely appropriate. Completely appropriate. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Well, what's the basis for this instruction? What are the two reasons that, Paul's get, that Paul gives for why these restrictions are in place? Well, reason number one is in verse 13 where he says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, notice how different this is from the instructions about braiding hair and those types of things. We can kind of see in those, Paul is expressing a sense of cultural uh, recognition. And we'll talk about this too when we get to head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11, right? That he's talking about this. Here, though, whenever he gives his restrictions, he immediately gives you his biblical basis for it, which means we cannot reduce it to a mere cultural reason. Because if it was a mere cultural reason, Paul uh, Paul wouldn't have gone back to the first book of the Bible to give you his theological justification for his instruction. So Paul's argument isn't a pragmatic one. It isn't a preferential one. And it isn't a cultural one. It is a doctrinal one, rooted in Genesis 2, where God made man and woman in a certain order, not because God just like flipped heads or tails and said, okay, what am I going to make first, Adam or Eve? No, he had a purpose in order to communicate a universal truth that he intended to guide and to guard his people. Timothy's church, you see, was at risk of confusion and dissension if they ignored the pattern that God had established. So Paul is not saying, by the way, that because Adam was made first, he is more important, valuable, or worthy, smarter, more adept, anything you would want to include than Eve. Now Genesis 1 reminds us that men and women are equally made in the image of God. They have equal worth, dignity. And they even have that before God in Christ, as Galatians tells us, and that in Christ there is neither male nor female. What Paul is saying is that the fact that God created man and woman in a particular sequence highlights a reality that men and women have distinct dispositions and roles that we've talked about. Remember that Adam even exercises authority. He has the authoritative things, naming the animals, even giving his wife her name, echoing how God himself names the various spheres of his creation. And remember that God gave his law to Adam about what they were to do and what they weren't to do, not to eat of that one tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, before Eve was even created. And the text in Genesis applies that Adam was responsible for conveying this teaching to his wife. Now, maybe God talked to her directly as well, but, but we're certainly not told that. Even in those early days of creation, God was tutoring the first man and woman in the ways that he had designed them gloriously equal and yet significantly different and distinct. And those previewed the different roles that we're seeing in the church and that we've talked about. And so I don't have time to go and rehash that, but go back and, and, and review that. But so the second reason, not only was Adam created first, that there was an order of this creation that reflected something of God's priority, but secondly, 
In verse 14, we're told Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, Paul isn't saying that women are more gullible than men. Both men and women can be deceived. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things, not women's hearts. So what is Paul getting at? Because, by the way, Eve is deceived, but then she directly goes, Adam, you want to eat this? And he goes, uh-huh. Right? When Paul says Adam was not deceived, he's observing that Adam isn't the one that the serpent targeted with his temptation. In Genesis 3, when Satan went to Eve and lied to her, he does so by subverting and going around God's created order. That instead of going to the head of the household, the head of the woman, Adam, God's appointed leader, ambassador on the earth, leader in marriage, protector and provider for his wife, he instead goes to Eve and Adam is absent. We don't know where he's at. Don't you want to, want to ask Adam in heaven, what, what was she doing? And he's going to be, you know, he's like that kid on the four-year-old soccer team who's just, everyone else is playing, but he's out like picking something, grass in the field, and you're like, what's that kid doing? I call, I call those the, the free radical of, uh, of the soccer team. Always one rogue Adam flying around Ion or something. Well, I don't know where Adam was, but he wasn't where he should have been. He wasn't protecting and providing for his wife. He wasn't protecting her from Satan, from the serpent. And that's what Satan does. He puts her in the position of spokesperson, leader, and defender of the faith, which wasn't supposed to be her role, which is why Adam gets the blame for not doing his duty. Adam and Eve were God's people under God's rule in covenant relationship to one another. And in that sense, they were something of a prototype for the church. We're told that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And Paul helps us see that in in Genesis 3, confirms that God's plan for male leadership in the covenant community of God's people. Because pastors are supposed to be under shepherds of the great shepherd. Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. And pastors are supposed to be under-shepherds of the great bridegroom. We represent him to the church in some sense. We do so very imperfectly. We do so in ways that often need forgiveness and need fixing. But that's the role of pastors, shepherds. Satan wants men in biblical leadership, whether it's in the home or in the church, to be passive and indifferent towards God's commands. And he wants women to come out from under the protection of their male leaders in church so that they too might be deceived. Because twisting of gender and roles has always been part of Satan's strategy from the very, very beginning. And is it any wonder that as a culture grows more and more sinful, more and more anti-God, that we see more and more gender, role, and confusion in our society? We pause and recognize that these verses are countercultural, because Scripture often challenges the prevailing spirit of the age, But God's word, which never changes, like the shifting shadows of culture, isn't just true, it is good. It gives health and life. And while it's tempting to focus on the negative reactions that verses like these get in our culture, why doesn't God allow women to teach and exercise authority over the church, we ask? Well, hopefully through our study, we've come to see that the fundamental equality of men and women in God's image isn't threatened by the fact that God has given men and women distinct roles and inclinations. 
teaching the gathered congregation, exercising oversight duties with a distinctively masculine shape to them is something God has designed, and we shouldn't be surprised that God calls men to these roles, and yet we should also honor women for how they gloriously fulfill their own callings. And our church is full of godly, humble, discerning women who faithfully obey the teaching of verses like these. And we praise God for that. They who support the preaching by listening, learning, praying for the preachers and obeying God's word. Not obeying the preacher, but obeying God's word. And in that, notice that it's women who are called as a group to give a model of what it means to be disciples who submit to biblical teaching. And in so doing, they actually give us men a model of humble submission to God's word. Because all men are disciples and learners too. And these verses make us grateful, I think, for the wonderful feminine examples we have of submitting to the preached word. Now finally, Paul concludes with a promise in verse 15, a famously difficult verse to interpret. But I think it's here to give women hope. He says, yet, yet, that though she, in the context of the garden, was deceived, yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they, the word they is a feminine plural, so it means if women continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, let's talk about what's clear. The last verses, the last part of that verse is clear. That if women have been guilty of overstepping biblical roles in this matter, whether in Ephesus or any place, don't despair. Walk in repentance. Continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Well, what about the phrase saved through childbearing? I mean, we know from Paul's writings and the rest of the Bible that you're not saved through any work you're only saved by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. So Paul is not, teach, not teaching somehow here a salvation by works. We also know that some women can't have children because of the fall's painful and mysterious effects on bodies. There are plenty of women in the Bible and out of the Bible who are fully feminine in spite of their difficulties of bearing children. So Paul can't be saying that. Well, there's a few possibilities for what he means. The first option, and I don't think a very good one, is... Um, uh, trying to be in accord with the underlying Greek grammar and the context of Adam and Eve in the garden. And these people would say that Paul is saying women are saved through uh, the childbearing, not just general childbearing, but the childbearing, or more literally, the, the birth of Jesus, the birth of the Messiah. That the promised victorious child was indeed born of woman, one of the daughters of Eve. And even if women in Ephesus had been disorderly in the church, they could be saved by trusting in the long-awaited Son of God who came to undo the curse. Um, and so gospel-centered, as the view might be, I think it's a stretch grammatically, and it would seem to come to an obvious conclusion that isn't specific to women because all people are ultimately saved only through the coming of Jesus Christ. It would seem a weird way to end his discussion. The other options are sort of all in the same vein. Okay? They have different uh, slight angles on it, but they're all sort of the same vein, and that is that it, this is in the context of women's roles. And the verse may be conveying simply that women are preserved in this life through their uniquely feminine callings. That will be seen often for those who are married in embracing their role of being a wife and a mother, if God provides the gift of children. So childbearing in this context could be something of a shorthand for sort of biblical femininity in general. 
After all, only women can bear children, and Eve was the mother of all the living in Genesis 3.20. Now, in addition to this, there is this sense of that they're going to face extreme difficulty in childbearing because of the curse of the fall, right? One of the, the women's part of the curse was that of childbearing, and so she is going to be tempted to hate the gift of childbearing, to hate her femininity. And God may be saying, in fact, no, I'm actually going to preserve you, I'm going to save you through the very thing that has been cursed, just like men will be saved, in a sense, through their work, through their exercising of authority, not harshly, but through exercising submission and, or servant leadership. Women will be saved through exercising their femininity, not saved salvifically, not saved getting their sins forgiven, but just preserved in life, preserved in this world by, by not reacting and, and running away from their femininity, but sort of leaning into it. You know, John Piper, by way of a guy named Henry Alford, he has a kind of an interesting take on it in this way. And he says that, you know, being saved through something doesn't mean being saved, necessarily doesn't mean being saved by it. But may mean being saved through it as meaning God gets you through a danger. And he also notices that Paul combines these same words, being saved and through, in 1 Corinthians 3.15, when it says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, they ask, could she will be saved through childbearing mean? She will be saved not by means of, but through and in spite of the engulfing pains of childbirth. In the context of the creation, Adam and Eve were created. Adam was derelict in his duty, but Eve was deceived and became a transgressor, and she won't be saved by rejecting who God has made her, she, won't be, she will be preserved even though the curse has been brought upon her in the form of pain and childbearing. God will preserve her even and save her in spite of that. She, will, she has become the transgressor, but she ultimately can become a forgiven transgressor through her faith in Christ. Bearing children lands on women. And we have to pause and remember and feel the weight of this for women in the centuries before things like hygiene, spinal blocks, cesarean sections, antibiotics, painkillers, and so on. No, no help often, no recovery. They had medicinal things, sure. And uh, there have been untold numbers of women who died in childbirth and countless more who suffered the rest of their lives from wounds because of childbirth. And so even more than today, there were aspects of childbearing that felt like being a woman was a curse from God. And often that burden lasted a lifetime. How easy it is for women to despair and feel that God is against them. That he was their cursor, not their savior. And to this sense of deep despair, Paul is giving the hope of the gospel. The pains of childbearing, the pains of the curse, even if they last a lifetime, are not God's final word to women. But God intends better things. This comes ultimately through faith in Christ, of course. And so some version of that is probably what Paul is getting at. I don't know that we can be definitive, but somewhere along the lines of that is in the role of being women that God will preserve them. And in fact, 
God will preserve them because we need women. We need women. We need children in this world. You know, we're probably in the next generation or so, they talk about we're going to be going through a depopulation crisis in different parts of the world because we're simply not having enough children in our part in the Western world. And this is going to cause implications for the economy, for all types of things. But we need, we need women in their role. They will be preserved. God has given them a special place of honor in that they're the only ones, contrary to popular modern belief, women are still the only people that can have babies. That is an absolute necessity. That is a glorious thing that we hold up and should hold up as a society. And God will preserve women through all of this. Something along those lines is what God is talking about. But you see, regardless of exactly which interpretation you fall on, God is elevating, not denigrating women. He is elevating them. Even if they don't have the role of pastors. Well, in our, in our just few remaining moments together, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 11. I don't have time to cover this. Um, and so I would encourage you to go to adult Sunday school. Aren't you guys getting close to? You're in 2 Corinthians, but go to adult Sunday school and just interrupt uh, Nevin's class and ask him about this, and he'll he'll give you the yeah yeah give you the thorough explanation that I don't have time to cover. It's that uh, thing I learned from Alistair Begg that uh, the principle of uh, intentional neglect that I don't have time to cover it this morning, but you go look at it on your own. Here's the background of what Nevin read in 1 Corinthians 11. In Corinth, the culturally acceptable thing to do to honor husbands was to wear some type of head covering or a veil in public. Going without a head covering would have signaled a subversive or rebellious posture against a woman's husband. And in this section of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul seems to be simply calling women not to just abandon this symbol of their husband's authority, but to maintain it even in the life of the church. So... I don't have time, like I said, to deal with every major question, but just to focus on some principles. Notice in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 11 that God expects women to serve publicly in the church. Paul assumes women will pray, and, and again, the, the prophesying that we talked about earlier when the church meets, uh, not as giving new revelation from God, but simply having prophecies that must be evaluated. And in fact, when you get to chapter 14 of the letter, uh, we see how these prophecies should be evaluated. And we define this type of prophecy that women could give is speaking about God's truth to edify God's people. And this verse indicates that women prayed, they offered this type of biblical encouragement in the New Testament church. But what about 1 Corinthians 14? Some people would say, doesn't it contradict it? If you look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, it says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should, see, but should be in submission, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. So the question is, is this some kind of contradiction? Is Paul in chapter 11 talking about women should be talking in church? And then in chapter 14, all of a sudden, three chapters later, he forgets what he said, and he says, oh, but now they shouldn't talk. No, what Paul is doing is addressing the hearts of some women in Corinth calling them to honor their husbands publicly as they participate in worship. And in chapter 14, the context from verse 29 is weighing what has been said, authoritatively weighing the prophecies that have been given. That verse says, when people in the congregation give these biblical words of encouragement, those must be weighed and judged as either being from the Lord or not from the Lord. And again, this isn't even really relevant for us as much because what do we have that the first century church didn't have 
that they had to spend a lot of time weighing whether things said were from God or not. They didn't have the New Testament. So where we authoritatively look to God's word and says, are the things that we're saying correct? They had to, when somebody would give an encouragement from God's word, they would have to get the elders together and authoritatively come down and say, yes, whether that was something that we should be listening to and following and learning from or whether it wasn't. So the speaking that is being talked about in chapter 14 seems to be, again, some sort of authoritative teaching about prophecies that have been given. In other words, Paul affirms that women will pray and speak, but it's not appropriate for them to speak authoritatively when it comes to the public evaluation of those prophecies according to Scripture. That falls into the category of something that is reserved for the pastors or the elders, the teaching authority of the church. So for us here, you'll frequently hear women and men alike share testimonies of salvation when they, for instance, get baptized or when they pray together or they share encouragement like Yumiko did. Um, but when they do, often it is someone like myself or Nevin or another qualified teacher standing in leadership to weigh what has been said and correct anything that would be wrong. That's regardless of who's speaking. So God expects... God expects women to be serving publicly in the church. But lastly, our last kind of point is that he expects women to serve in the church in a way that embraces their feminine identities, not dismisses them. It's the whole point of head coverings. And really all of verses 3 to 16, Paul calls women to present themselves in a way that makes it clear that they're submitting to God's design of marriage in their home and church. So when Paul says that nature teaches the Corinthians... Long hair is a disgrace for a man, but glory for a woman. He's not claiming that certain hair lengths or styles are essential to being masculine or feminine, but he's saying that just nature teaches you that men and women are different. And generally, women have much longer hair than men. He's saying that nature teaches you this, and we naturally have a conscience that should direct us to live consistently with our masculine or femininity, whatever that looks like in a particular culture. Hair lengths and fashions change over time, but what hasn't changed, what is natural, is the fact that we're created to express our manhood and womanhood in culturally appropriate ways, not blur the difference between them. So do Christian women have to wear head coverings today? Some people think so. But I think in our culture, women don't wear head coverings. So to wear one wouldn't communicate submission. I think the closest thing we could come to today would be women, keep your wedding rings on in church. Something like that. If there was a problem, there probably was a problem in Corinth with women defiantly taking off head coverings when they came into church. I don't think we have a problem with that, but if we did, that would be something we would address. If women came into the church and said, in here there's neither male nor female, put that away. You're not my husband in church. Because that's what their head, not wearing head coverings meant. It doesn't have any cultural meaning today, so it's something that we don't do today. That's a challenge, actually, in our culture, because we don't have garments that say, I'm, hap I'm, I'm happy to be a woman who accepts the authority of my husband and of the elders according to God's design. For us, a woman might show respect to her husband and the other men in church who have authority by building up her husband with her speech when she does speak. If she has concerns about teaching that she hears, that she brings those to her husband first if she's married, and if she's not, then bringing those privately to elders. So male teaching authority in the church is, is an implication of God's created order, though there are some cultural trappings that fade away. 
We go back and we end with 1 Timothy 2, where Paul writes, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In other words, the church should be a place where God's design for marriage and family and church order and structure is treasured and exemplified, not fought against. What do the angels have to do with it? Well, some suggest it's God's angels, heavenly beings, looking at the church, following God's created order, filled with joy. Others suggest these could be believers from another church checking in on the health of the congregation because the word for angelos can simply mean messengers. Uh, The truth is I'm not sure, but thankfully it doesn't affect the main point of the text, so I can skip it. Um, The point is, God is saying in all these things, I hope you hear this, that we lean into who God has created us to be. We submit to God's authority in his word, in, his, in our lives, whatever that authority is. And Paul says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. All things are from God. The point is, we need each other. We have different roles but neither men or women are superior or inferior to one another. Men and women are interdependent and utterly dependent, all of us, upon God. And that's why we submit to his word, even when the things it says are inconvenient or brush up against our cultural, um, our our world's cultural conceptions. We, we, We do a good job of doing this and gratefully doing so and dispelling some of the myths, hopefully, uh, that or in the culture about the Bible being anti-woman or something like that. Simply not true. If anything, our culture is anti-woman nowadays, right? Um, because it refuses to even define uh, what women are. But I hope you hear this from the heart of your pastors, that we value and uh, love and cherish the contributions of the women of our church and help us to be continually be better and better shepherds uh, for all people in our church. Let's pray. Father, uh, these things are sometimes complicated. They're sometimes weighed with controversy, but we pray that you would have our hearts to be drawn to the scriptures and not to the newspaper headlines or to Twitter feeds or Facebook arguments, but that we would get our understanding of how we're to live in marriage, family, the church, in our culture, not from those things, but from your word. So help us, each of us, in our own ways, where we have neglected or overstepped our, our duties as men or women, uh, to go back to your word and to seek to live in accordance with what your word says and speaks. And help us now as we eat and drink together as one family, all of us, uh, whether male or female, uh, Jew or Greek, slave or free, we come to eat at the same table this morning because we do so of those who have been bought with, Jesus, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, given new life in Him, through faith in, in Him alone. And we pray that this would be to your glory and to the good of your people, whoever they are and however they serve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.